Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guests are Sarah Walker and Lee Cronin. Sarah is an astrobiologist and theoretical physicist at Arizona State University. She is deputy director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science and a professor in the School of Earth and Space Exploration. She's also on the external faculty at the Santa Fe Institute and a fellow at the Berggruen Institute. Lee is Regis Chair of Chemistry at the University of Glasgow in Scotland and CEO of Chemify. I looked Chemify up when I was preparing for this episode and man, that looks like an interesting damn company. I've had a long standing interest in artificial chemistry, directed chemistry, computational chemistry, etc. And I personally believe that the first payoff from quantum computing is going to be in computational chemistry, for better or for worse. But anyway, Chemify is the name of his company. He's the CEO, so he's a, like a big dude, right? And so he does he does have some real experience at this stuff. So anyway, welcome, Sarah and Lee. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to be here. And I'll tell you, you know, I, I scan a lot of stuff, read a lot of stuff. And when I read this article you guys wrote, Time is an Object, in Aeon Magazine, my head snapped back. I go, whoa. This was a, it's a well-written article. And a lot of pop science is just that pop, right? This is not too pop, but it's very readable, but it goes quite deep and engages the idea of time, what time may be, that you all trace the, the history of the idea reasonably well. And you lay out a new concept of time that has really gotten me thinking. And I immediately reached out to you. It took a while for us to arrange this, but I got to say this was a 9.6 on my signal out of 10 of, you know, reading random papers, which I do all the time. And people send me stuff to, to read. I think this one I found on my own. There's also a, a bit deeper journal article in, in the journal Entropy called Formalizing the Pathways to Life Using Assembly Spaces by Marshall et al. Sarah and Lee are co-authors on that paper, I believe. Yes, that's correct. And also there's a website, Assembly Theory, at www.molecular-assembly.com. And of course, as usual, those links and other links relevant to this discussion will be on the episode page at jimrutcho.com. So... We're entering into the discussion about time. You know, this has been a concept that people have been talking about for a long time, pun intended. So why don't we start with a little bit of the history of the idea of time? That's a very long history. It depends yeah, well, on let's, But let's keep it short. Yeah. <laughs> Five um, minutes, no more. Yeah. Uh, Lee, do you want to start or do you want me to start on that one? I, I can. Uh, so I'm trained as a card carrying physicist. So I think I was indoctrinated into certain concepts of time because they were invented in certain centuries and just kind of stuck. But the thing that kind of recently deeply intrigued me about the concept of time itself is how it has changed over different cultures, over different time periods, and also how 
it depends on the technology of the time. So our first clocks were, you know, like made of sand and wind and shadows. But when we built mechanical clocks, then we had this sort of clockwork universe that Newton came up with and this idea of time as being this sort of ultimate clock that the universe just kind of moves through that there's this this ticking. But there's there's other concepts of time that physics has invented over the centuries, like relative time in, in Einstein physics, which leads to the block universe that all times exist everywhere all at once. And so I think one of the things that Lee and I've been most interested in is that none of these concepts of time really have it as a property of objects or a property that actually itself has some materiality to it. It's always just some kind of fluid the universe moves through or, or some kind of concept like that. So I, it might be time to reinvent time yet again. <laughs> yeah, Lee, you got anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I would say that there is a, I'm, I'm not a dualist, I'm a materialist, but I would say that time is a very strict. So the, the second law, which we can talk about in the universe expanding, and the and the fact that time travel is not allowed, only forward, not backwards, okay? So it tells me there is something outside spatial dimensions that is beyond just a measurement of time, of things passing. And so that means that there is a, I view it like an, a fabric, which isn't space, but it is the capacity for things to happen. And the capacity for things to happen is increasing. And that is separate to the measurement of time. So you could think of time as a kind of pyramid on its head, expanding into something, and where and from that expansion comes space. And so that's super hard for people to understand because automatically you start becoming dualists and something away. That's not correct. I think there is this fundamental fabric. There's the capacity for things to happen is increasing. And the ability to measure those things happening is what we call time now. And I think that's a kind of once you get that in your head that there is this capacity for more things to happen in the future than was in the past the concept of time, the second law and everything makes a great deal of sense. Because otherwise, the second law is one of these religious doctrines you have to adopt. It has no fundamental basis. It has no, there is no mechanism. And what we're proposing is a mechanism which all this comes about. And sadly, time travel is not possible. And the fact that physicists can basically make random stuff up, that time travel is possible, and yet be very condescending to people about, say, the conservation of energy, for me, is completely baffling. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, obviously, listeners to my show know that I am an arch materialist as well. In fact, probably my most well-known line is when I hear the word metaphysics, I reach for my pistol. <laughs> Meaning metaphysics in the Aristotelian or Kantian sense, not the newfangled sense that people use it today to mean anything that doesn't have to do with hard stuff. So, yeah, let's think, well, we will stick strictly to the materialist realm today. I want to reflect back on what Sarah mentioned, which is the physics perspective. Time totally, originally totally reversible. You know, your basic Newtonian mechanics work just as well forward and backward. Well, guess what? Turns out there's this one weird little detail physicists hate, which is K on decay, right? There is one subatomic particle that decays, I don't know, half of 1% of the time in a irreversible way that breaks CP symmetry, which is kind of nerd yeah. talk. So there's been this one anomaly sitting out there for the idea that physics time could go forward or backward. I've always been a skeptic on it because it's just 
just don't doesn't seem reasonable. And then Einstein's block world's even more radical, which right. is that you just mentioned it in passing. I want to highlight this for the audience that the Einsteinian view is that the universe is a block. The, think about the universe being a plane that's moving through time and creates therefore a block. Let's make the the plane, a rectangle, just to keep the geometry simple. And so we end up with a solid, rectangular solid out infinitely into the future. And amazingly, Einstein's view, and a lot of other physicists, is that block has always existed and that it is, it's unchanging and that that is the nature of time. And it's more or less an illusion that we feel like we're passing through time. Is that unfair to Einstein, Sarah? No, no. I think that's an accurate description of what most physicists think. I just think it's kind of an unreasonable viewpoint to take. And I've always found it really interesting with the theories of physics we have, how we make assumptions about the reality that they describe and sometimes overextend, you know, the descriptions to describe things that maybe they're not relevant to. So Einstein's theory really didn't have anything to do with life, which clearly has some kind of directionality to it. And so I, I kind of consider Einstein's universe a dead universe. <laughs> Maybe a universe that look like that. Yeah. And I, I actually, and we'll get to this later. But if you guys are right, you actually kill Einstein's block universe. I mean, yes. your theory and his theory are incompatible. Not a bad day's work. Take down old Albert on time. Well, yeah, that's, that's before we kill Einstein. I think Einstein did something very, very interesting in terms of understand giving us relativity. Okay, relativity still works in a, in a world in which time is irreversible, and so and I think the problem is that that when he got to the Planck universe and extension, that that is kind of like it's it's a hard it's a it's a hard thing to case basically make thing something testable on, and the thing which I've always said about my intuition on time is it's it's an argument we can have, but we have to somehow make it testable. So we only kill the block universe if we come up with a a reasonable. I mean, it doesn't have to be you know testable to the billionth degree, but it it has to come up with a new mechanism and understanding that makes sense of the world in a new way, and would be great if it became predictive as well as explanatory. Yep, and you guys are pointing in that direction. You know, that's why I was so excited when I read the article. Right, I go, this is not. Yet another minor tweak to science, right? This is a big one. And that's what we like to talk about here on The Jim Rudd Show. So before we move on, I'm going to get a little bit of reading on theories of time, again, refreshing my memory, and uh, some of the historical models of why why time seems to have this arrow, that it seems to be irreversible. You know, the, the famous example from like high school physics is an egg dropped on the floor and splattering. You say, well, you can't run that movie backward and have it make any sense. So that's essentially the thermodynamic arrow of time, Boltzmann, Boltzmann equations and all that, that disorder increases and somehow the increase of disorder itself is the arrow of time. And that sounds like it's something, but not quite right. And then there's the idea of the cosmological arrow of time that Again, let's take Big Bang literally, that the world started as a singularity. I'm not quite there, but something very, very small at least. And something, explosion happened, and everything's been moving out from that. And so, you know, moving from the state of a point to the state of 
Big itself provides an arrow of time, which is then closely related. And I say that you guys fall into this family, the causal arrow of time that, you know, somebody described history as one damn thing after another. And you could say after another implies time. And if causality is real and causality is sequenced, then one could say at a minimum that the sequence of causal relationships has something to do with the apparent arrow of, t- arrow of time. And then, of course, us physics fanboys love our K-on decay as a particle physics explanation. There are people who take that seriously. And the arrow of time is nothing but the effect of a few weird, rare asymmetries in particle decomposition. I find that unlikely, but yeah. it's a theory. And then the last one, it's kind of a fuzzy theory, and that is that somehow, and it's related to the causal arrow, arrow theory, I would argue, that quantum decoherence, the fact that quantum states collapse to classical states all the time, itself is a driver of what appears to us to be the error of time. And I would suggest that you have to combine that with the causal error mm-hmm. family of, of errors of time to come up with something useful. So anyway, is that, a, is that a fair way to categorize the space of arrow of time theories? I think that is, I I just want to make a a point clear about the causal arrow of time that I find really interesting is that irreversibility needs to be an emergent property in the sense, I mean, emergent, whatever that word means, but in the sense that in order for something to be caused, you have to have a mechanism that can cause it in one direction. So it could be the case that irreversibility only occurs if you have something that can cause the same process to happen both forwards and backwards. And those might be implemented in different machines. So this is one of the reasons that in biology, where all your objects are evolved, that you may not have mechanisms for reversing the process because they would have to evolve too. So you'd actually have to instantiate in a physical object something that could have the information or pattern to reverse a particular process that evolved. And that's sort of a non-trivial feature. I think in physics, reversibility is easy because none of those processes require memory to ever form. But if you want to have a a reversible process in more complex systems, you actually have to have the memory for the forward process and for the reverse process. Okay, now we're getting up to the edge of your theory, which is that, well, why don't you guys take it away? So let's now lay out in as succinct a fashion as possible, despite the fact that you're both professors, the essence, the core of assembly theory. Yeah, okay. Before before that, I would say, the just to add on to your time thing, as I would say that causation is evidence of time or this thing, that it isn't for, for time to exist. That's why people get there, get really confused. Bertrand Russell used to refer to causation as being, you know, like like a religious artifact, like not needed. And I found that really insulting to how the, that we should think about the world. But in terms of assembly theory, I guess so we go right back to the beginning. I mean, I think assembly theory is easiest to understand in terms of we can explain the theory, but also what I think is good to kind of explain how, it, how we built the kind of the idea in the first place and it really is kind of the idea of to say if i take an object how unlikely is this object to form probabilistically by chance right when this object can a have a large number of parts and b be present in a large number of identical objects and i think it's easy to imagine a one-off object that has lots of complicated parts 
that that has no impact. That's just you assigning parts. It could be the man in the moon, some cheese, whatever, right? Or some lines on Mars. Or it could be a load of identical sand grains, not very many, but just one part. So they're all identical, lots of them. So it's that intermediate space where you have objects that are ostensibly by eye or by some analytical method identical. I don't know, let take, go to the ice, the Apple. I'm not sponsored by Apple, but hey, they can give me some money if they want. They have a little bit. Go to the Apple store and you pick up like 10 identical iPhone 14s. They're identical by every measure that you can think of, yet they have billions of parts. And so you say, right, if I go to Mars and I find one iPhone 14, what's the chances that could you know, occur randomly? We, you, would, you would know something is up, something is tricky. But if you find 10 identical iPhone 14s, you know for sure that that couldn't have, have formed by chance. And that was kind of the basis of assembly theory in terms of thinking differently. And again, I'll remain those two components. Number one, the number of parts does an object have and the number of copies that object can occur in. I will pause for a second. I think Sarah and I can tag it because we will add on bits to the theory as we go. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd, I want to add anything quite at this stage. I think I'll let you get on and then I can I can come. Well, I think, I mean, the other thing that kind of, well, we would get object is the recursive decomposition, right? If you right. take an object and then, so the next thing from that is if you, if you, you, how do you, how do you know if one object, like let's take the word abracadabra, right? Which has 13 letters in it and instead take 13 A's and go, ah, right? <laughs> you know, so which one is more complicated? Well, of course it's abracadabra. Why? Because it has a number, it has, it's not just one letter, it's got several letters, right? Well, wait a minute here. Let's pause a second. The, yeah. uh, at the Santa Fe Institute, we believe that the idea of measures of complexity is still a very unsettled field. All wrong. Okay, good. That's here. I love to hear this one. Now, what you're describing uh, sounds a lot like Komogorov complexity, which is, you know, a measure not of. Not computable. Which is, is it computational complexity, essentially? Computational complexity. So, anyway, so why are we wrong at the Santa Fe Institute that there's a good measure of complexity? I don't know if Sarah, I don't know. The Santa Fe Institute now, so like we're not all technically wrong, but um, yeah, no, it's not. I know we play good cop or bad cop, but Sarah, go no, no, no. So I think there's a, a couple of things. One is like traditional measures from computer science are more about what is the program size complexity and can you find a minimal machine to run it on? So it's actually a feature of the interaction of a program with a machine that you can find the minimal length. And this is one of the reasons it's uncomputable because you have to search over all possible machines to make sure that you have the minimal program description. And in our case, we don't really care about a computer being able to compute an object. We care about the intrinsic properties of the object. So we think that it's actually a physical feature of the object itself. And maybe you want to think of the universe as the thing computing that object and bringing it into existence. So it might have some parallels there, but there's only one universe that can generate objects that we know of. And so we actually have to have a really strict definition based on the laws of physics and how they operate in our universe. And we're not looking for the minimal description of an object. We're looking for what is the minimal set of causal pathways for making the object. And there's some very specific constraints that we pose on that because of the physics. One of those is that this recursivity that you can only use parts you've built in the past, which means that every object encodes its own memory, which is one of the reasons that we have come up with this sort of new concept of time from this, because you actually take 
in assembly theory, that minimal path is a physical attribute of the object, which means the object itself is extended in time as a recursive hierarchical modular object that has this structure. And that's very different than the interpretations from computer science and complexity theory. And something that is that we're kind of working on really delineating now that's come out of the theory is traditional measures of complexity can't distinguish random from complex, right? This is always the problem we have. Random things look very complex because they're unstructured and sort of maximally unstructured. In assembly theory, random objects are really hard to make. And in fact, we don't really expect them to be evolved. They might be a sign of intelligence. And we can talk a, a bit more about that because that really comes from him thinking about these properties. But what we look for is objects that have reuse of parts. So evolution constantly is reusing parts to make new things. And the only way that we conjecture you can get to these high complexity objects in the first place is by having a memory of what existed in the past and reusing those features. So assembled complexity requires high copy number, and it also requires high copy number of parts. So it's like this, this the copy number is actually very deeply embedded in the causal chain. And so you end up having objects that have a lot of symmetries in their parts because they reuse parts, which is very different than the that are totally random. So what we're talking about is an evolved kind of complexity, not a, I just look at the statistics of patterns of systems and say, this one looks like it's complex versus this one. We're actually looking at the causal chain and how complex is that? And can that even form based on finite resources, finite time? Can we even explore this region of the possibility space? Lee, you want to add to that, Eddie? Yeah, so look, I'm just, I was, I'm digging in my outlook here. I want to give you an email. I read you an email, if I may, that Freeman Dyson wrote to me, right? Okay. Because like complex, look, I really am not going to make any friends in this, but complexity theory is not, none of it's correct. And it's one of the biggest errors that a lot of uh, people have made. Let me read it to you. When I was uh, talking to Freeman, he said, I should add the whole literature of complexity. He wrote this to me on the 2nd, 20th of February, 2018. So I should add the whole literature of complexity theory suffers from the same deficiency. The experts call it complexity theory, but in fact, there is no theory. There are a lot of interesting examples of complex objects and complex systems, but no general understanding of their behavior. And a collection of, of examples, not of theory, if it provides no understanding. And so my problem with complexity theory in general is it was generated by computationalists, fascinated with computation and Turing machines, fantastic, and measuring things and not really understanding the context in where they're doing it. It's a game. And so they're pretty strong words. And I think it's time that young people stop playing around with complexity theory because it doesn't give them anything. Uh, and and rather, than rather than kind of making people angry, particularly there are some people out there have lots of complexity measures, it makes them angry, you can't compare them. And Sarah is entirely right. So being charitable, Komogorov complexity is an incredibly interesting concept but requires computer. And there's lots of kind of other things that people try and do to try and get statistics. And I think that they're kind of thinking in the wrong way. It's a collection of things. I've been interested in complexity theory since I was like, I don't know, 12, right? Maybe maybe a bit older, chaos theory and, and dynamic systems. And I think people quite rightly understand uh, interest in complex dynamical systems. But what do we mean by complex? We mean lots of parts. And we mean interesting behavior that we can't predict a priori when we call screen them. So complexity basically is an excuse to not actually do your accounting properly. It is an excuse to basically write programs to collect things together and bin them and say, oh, I've got a number 
and there's an excuse to kind of try and compare things that aren't comparable. And I think that assembly theory finally gets away from that because we can harness the desire to measure complexity between domains and actually ground it in terms of how hard was it to make this object? How complicated is it? What's the difference between a complex architecture that has been built and a mixture of stuff you just found on the moon? And I think that, and, 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 I, and I'm obviously being provocative because I hope that we'll get interesting discussions, not, not abuse, because I don't want abuse. I want to basically provoke people to think. But I think it's, you know, we have to go deeper than just having a Turing machine do some stuff and think of an imaginary oracle. Yeah, indeed. Well, interestingly, in significant part, I actually agree with you in that I do not think there is a useful theory of complexity yet. I think of the domain of complexity scientists is a field that's exploring height, you know, the kind of phenomena you discussed, and there is no unified theory yet. In fact, people at Santa Fe Institute almost all will admit that. But there are little bits and pieces of interesting findings, some of which may provide some insights, etc. So, but in any case, so we probably agree more than you might guess. But let's move on. In well, assembly, in a, but let's, because we could talk about this all day, we don't have all day. In assembly theory, you, you have the concept of steps as at least a rough index on complexity. Talk about what your steps are. Yeah, that's important. So I may mention that very quickly. So I think this is where it gets really interesting in that actually the, if you take, a, I'm just say from a molecule first, we were molecules first, because the chemist, I'm pretty boring. I can only think of molecules. So I say, let's take a molecule. And for this molecule, draw a graph, draw a picture of the molecule graph. And then say, what is the, let's break the molecule up into its components and then ask yourself, what is the shortest route I can take to reform that molecule with the least number of steps where you're able to reuse components? And what was pretty astounding is that the actual, well, not, I mean, it's obvious now that there is a shortest path to make a molecule if, if conceptually using those units. And it, what we found out is that it's actually experimentally measurable. In fact, kind of assembly theory was invented as a, as a process of measuring this decomposition and then rebuilding it. And so, so the concept of the step is super important because there, this is, tells you about there was some memory somewhere or some kind of decision on a tree that allowed you to go there, 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 or that molecule. And so what you can do on this decision tree, if you like, if you have a good number of steps, say 15 steps, the chances of you taking each of those correct branches on the tree, the more steps you go into, into space, the more, the more improbable it is that that happens. So the, basically, the larger the number of steps a molecule has, the more improbable it is that it would have formed by chance in just a random mess. And I don't know, I mean, I think Sarah also has some, you know, a, a spin on this. Well, I, I, I want to reiterate what you said, because I think this is one of the most important things for me as a theorist thinking about these problems, is that this theory was developed starting from the measurement. And so a lot of people thinking in my space, particularly about the nature of life and how do we build theories of life, they always start from abstract concepts and they don't really try to bridge it to like, what could you measure in the lab? And so I think Lee's really profound insight was I can go in the lab and I can measure stuff. What can I measure that's relevant to building a theory of physics that will explain life? And so that's actually really how the theory started. And I think as a theorist, that gives it much more ample playground for actually developing concepts that are physically relevant because nature is sort of the ultimate set of creative constraints. And the fact that we could do this is, is to me pretty profound. 
So the other thing I just want to point out, because I, the, I, you know, we usually make this point in most discussions about assembly theory, but I think people underestimate how big chemical space is. Like we don't even have a conception. Like we, we can see pictures of the Hubble Deep Field and we go, oh, wow, the universe is big. But we don't see a picture of like, what's the possibility space of the things that can be made on Earth? And it, it's, it's exponentially huge because it's a combinatorial space and we can make all these kinds of objects. And chemistry is, is really the first place that you can really see that. So, you know, even conservative estimates about the size, the number of small molecules are just astronomically large, and there's just not enough resources in the entire universe to make every possible small molecule. So what assembly theory is doing that's super interesting, I think, is as actually grounding by talking about these number of steps for recursively making objects, it's now giving a structure to that space that's almost like a coordinate in the possibility space that tells you how hard is it in the space of possibilities to get to this molecule. And then the copy number gives kind of a weight to that probability distribution to try to say that like the fact that these exist is really unexpected based on the structure of this space being built up in these expanding possibilities, the deeper we get into that space by the, the, the number of steps. So there is like a sense of a physical space that we can think about in assembly in terms of how molecules or anything that can be constructed by a finite number of steps can actually be arranged in kind of a physical volume now, which I think is super interesting because, you know, physicists had to invent concepts of time and clocks to measure it. And we also had to have rulers to measure physical space. But this actually gives a way of measuring possibility space in kind of a meaningful way with respect to what we expect evolution to be able to produce. Very good. Yeah, and I would say that actually Sarah and I started this discussion way further ago, right, in this, in that her argument to me when I, one of the first times I met her was that there's missing physics. And I was like, oh, this sounds kind of cool. What does this mean exactly? And she's like, well, it's kind of missing. <laughs> so I was like, okay. And then it was this, so, well, there was this kind of causation information stuff. And so... And my, my initial feeling was that wasn't quite right, but it wasn't wrong. And the notion in my head was like, there are molecules that are interesting and they seem to appear. And so as we, I think what we kind of did in our own way for a little while is try to put those two things together, say, well, okay, can we identify evidence of information, right, in the universe, in the absence of biology? And I actually think this is what kind of Sarah's insight was. I'm just a you know random chemist who set fire to things. Can it burn? Oh, it burns! Awesome, right? Well done. And and then when we were then when I was thinking about these mass spec experiments, it became that became the avenue that we we started to go down. And the nice thing is this concept of the number of parts in the molecule is now measurable, not just one technique with three different techniques, and you can actually measure it. <laughs> and all the chemists, I think, still think that this is a nonsense number because it's got nothing to do about the synthesizability. It's got nothing to do about other than the probabilistic bounding. But the fact you can count the number of different parts in the molecule using so you can shine light on it and the way it absorbs the light, the more light, it, the more different wavelengths of light it can discover, the more colors you can get absorbed, the more complex molecule. Another technique called magnetic resonance, the more different where you absorb in the radio frequency. The more different radio frequencies you can discreetly observe, the more parts you have. And in mass spec, which is a where you weigh a, weigh, a, weigh a molecule and you cut it up by hitting it into bits, the more bits you get when you hit it, the, again, assembly index is proportional to those three measurements. So it's super cool that we had a 
fundamental concept that we were playing with and we could then actually measure it and it wasn't it kind of seems to be right each molecule we know has a minimum assembly index associated with it yeah that that was another thing that caused my head to come up ah not just random speculation backed up by actual results and presumably replicable results right so but uh, now let's go into the other thing that was hugely interesting to me and you you mentioned it in passing i'd like to dig into this more deeply and this is the idea that at some level of number of steps it becomes important to have memory in a system. And I'm going to give you my take on an example of what this memory might be that would help our audience understand it. And tell me if I'm full of shit, because I often am, but I'll at least take a whack at it, which is big organic molecules have to be, the memory that results in big organic molecules is essentially the deep memory in DNA and the local memory in the cytoplasm and the metabolism within a cell. And those are essentially the memory that you're talking about that's a prerequisite to the creation of large organic chemicals in cells. Is that close enough? Yeah, I like that. That's, that's a great way to explain it. The genes encode for the proteins, the proteins do stuff. And in the cytoplasm, there are local environmental things going on that can allow to shape that and you get the molecules you need. Yeah, ribosomes, you know, scaffolding, et cetera. But all that yeah. is memory, because and some of it's very, very deep memory, right? Some of it goes all the way back to Luca, our, our last universal common ancestor three and a half billion years ago. Some of it's right current, right? The epigenetics of what's going on in your cytoplasm, for instance. And so these are memories of many scales that provide a prerequisite to create N number of steps. And this actually ties in closely to the work I don't know. I don't know if he's aware of assembly theory. I'm going to have him on my podcast in a couple of weeks. I'll ask him. That's David Krakauer's ideas about the evolution of information processing yes. in the universe, right? I see this as closely related because an implication of your theory is that as as structures that allowed memory to get deeper and deeper and more complicated, if not necessarily complex, increased over time in the evolution of the universe, the ability to take more steps increases along with that. And the two may well be dependent, you know, extra steps may well be dependent on memory depth. Yeah, I think we're both fans of David's work and, and we've talked with him a bit about assembly theory. So it's, it's really cool to see the intersections there. Yeah, it'll be interesting. All right. So now we've talked about memory. We've talked about number, which actually is interesting because it rules out the, the occasional fluke, right? Something that happens very, very low probability by randomness and such things do happen by randomness. So you have a large number of a species and a species that has a high complexity count by your step mechanism. And you then give that an assembly index. Is that that's approximately right? So the two together say that this has to have a this this is a representation of high assembly. Is that mm -hmm. approximately correct? That's right. Yeah. So we came up we came up the assembly equation, which unifies those things. So the assembly equation, roughly speaking, is like an equal to a, is a summation over the exponential to the power of the assembly index times one minus the copy of the object. Why is it one minus? Because you only have one copy. It has zero contribution. So one minus one is zero and it goes to zero. And then some kind of normalization. And we, we kind of have a higher weighting on the assembly index because that gives you kind of more memory. But I actually think the copy number is, is nicely poisoned there. So you should be able to kind of measure the assemblyness. 
when we were coming up this word, Sarah and I were debating what do we call it. I mean, I was going to call it asentropy or arsentropy. I like that. That, <laughs> it, that didn't work. My mobile phone's name is still arsentropy. So occasionally I have like, I get an Apple saying, where is your, where is arsentropy? <laughs> so, <laughs> I like um, but it, it is ars. I was going to call it arsentropy forever now. Assembly is literally a measure of the amount of, evolutional selection that's gone into the objects that you've considered over the volume and you know it may be at the end of the universe or there will be no end of the universe if we're right we'll just be more and more evolved the assembly just goes up so there's that in there and it's super interesting to kind of get those balanced together and we're still digging into that because assembly tells you about selection i think if nothing else tells you about selection and memory to get there and I would I would add it probably also points to selection for memory. Yes. Yeah. Well, because because if things that are more have more steps, at least sometimes provide selective advantage, then that would say there's a meta evolutionary evo devo context going on for the evolution of more memory as well. Mm-hmm. So, so assembly theory. I mean, the most profound outcome assembly theory that that I think Sarah and I were kind of thinking about, Sarah's missing physics in essence was like selection has to predate biology as we know it. No selection, you are you you need you need a local creationist to come up with life if selection didn't occur before biology, because where's all the complexity come from, right? So selection builds in steps randomly to start with, and then by chance the mechanisms from memory get built by the universe. And we can talk about what those loops are. They're very simple. We're still kind of bottoming that in the lab right now. It's like Sarah's becoming an experimentalist as fast as I'm becoming a theorist and vice versa, because I think it's useful to design experiments. I like theorists who design experiments because it makes it much more grounded. So assembly theory allows us to identify selection before biology. And then there's a critical event that happens at biology where biology is like a selection amplifier. Well, it becomes a big enough autocatalytic network that has closure and the ability to resist entropy sufficiently not to be dissipated. And that magical moment occurred, as far as we know, just once, or at least uh, only one has survived. Now, regular listeners know Origin of Life is one of our regular recurring themes here. We have Eric, we've had Eric Smith on, we've had Bruce Damer on a number of times, of other people talk about Origin of Life. And so the idea of selection in the prebiotic is something that uh, regular listeners would know about. But I'm glad glad your, your theory goes there because it, it must, as you, as you realize, right? There is, otherwise, you do have, and then a miracle occurred, and that's not a good, a good way to- Well, it's to, not a miracle in assembly theory. There's like actually a mechanism to talk about why- And Bruce Damer lays out his own mechanisms. There's, and there's multiple, and Eric Smith has his, and, yeah. uh, and Harold Morowitz, who was a dear friend right. of mine, had his, and, and all that was interesting. Well, I think, I think there's a difference in a mechanism of explaining the origin of life itself, right? Which is- like some people think is a chemical phenomena where you want to explain why maybe a replicating molecule or a autocatalytic set emerged from a geochemical environment. But there's another bar of explaining the origin of life as a cascade over 4 billion years of building complexity on this planet with the origin of life as a recur- like a recursive transformation that is continually still happening to this day, which we, we call evolution. And so I think that the sort of problem that we're trying to solve with assembly theory is 
you know, it's addressing the origin of life, but it's addressing the origin of life from a different explanatory framework than what we would traditionally would consider origin of life science. So in some sense, it is a theory for the origin of life, but it's actually much broader and it, it's it's attempt to explain features of life that so far have been unexplained. And for me, this was always the most interesting thing going in the origin of life field is there were all these people that were trying to define life and then use their definition to design an origin of life experiment. And no one was starting from really first principles to say, well, what is the phenomena of life? And then how could we understand the transition from non-life to life from, from more fundamental principles? Although I think I think some of the people you named have, have certainly been thinking in that space. But I think I think that's a really tall bar. And then the question becomes, what is the experimental proof you solve the origin of life? And Lee and I are kind of in agreement that the real experimental proof is actually evolving alien life in the lab, which is not just recapitulating the steps we think happened on early Earth, but having a totally de novo origin of life event that might explore some other region of chemical space. Ah, we'll talk about that a little bit in more depth later. But I'm, let me get on to something closely related, sure. which, which is, again, another thing caused my head to, I mean, my head almost whipped off reading this damn article. So many interesting ideas that you found this sharp line between non-biotic and biotic steps in chemistry. I believe it was 13 or 14 was essentially the flip point. And you were said pretty strongly, 15 steps or above, it must be biotic, or as we'll talk about next, the equivalent of biotic. Because I do think you all have a little bit of biotic, biotic myopia. There could be other processes that had similar complexity generating attributes that aren't life. But at least for now, the only one we know about is life. So talk about this idea of a sharp phase transition and how that might be useful in various ways. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's kind of tough to kind of say something definitively when you've got N is 1. And obviously, some people say that you know, life is a continuum or life doesn't exist. Like I, I was at a meeting with Sarah when someone said life doesn't exist, we're like, that's useful. And life is a continuum, that's also useful. Uh, but what we do see when you take chemistry in life and chemistry in inorganic chemistry and compare them, you have a sharp phase transition in the combinatorial space. That's great. That doesn't mean to say, before we go and discuss this, that, you, that, that um, it's impossible to get from inorganic chemistry to life. It must be gradually in steps. But what I think happens is you take small steps and it builds those systems and that is happenstance. And then actually when the systems become established through selection and evolution, you establish this new technology, if you like, that is so far to the right. Or, and when say left is non-life, right is life, that it kind of there's a clear, clear gap that opens up in the middle. So I should say that. So it's not magic. There is a continuum in complexity. But then a life has a habit of amplifying that and just running away. It's like technological takeoff. Like it's like now going to look for old phones, like phones that are plugged into the wall. We know they were there, but everyone's wireless, right? Let's want to make that point. Well, maybe. I live in a place that doesn't have cell coverage. It's like it's a 20-minute drive to the closest cell coverage. So Exactly. So there's still examples, right? So <laughs> but it but the phase transition to smart if you were to take all the smart all the phones on the earth right. and plot them, you know, against Super, the one very very you quick have the same phase transition as an inorganic to so yeah. so that's kind of when we saw that, we were like, gee, that's really interesting. And it looks like on Earth, the chemistry in the biology on Earth has this characteristic, and the chemistry not in biology has this other characteristic, and it's a sharp difference. Now, is it the same on Titan, if there's life on Titan, or on planet X, where planet X is alive? We don't know, because it's going to be perhaps a feature of the chemistry that's being cooked. But we think, looking for a phase transition, 
between kind of abiotic and biotic chemistry is going to be a very good signature in the future. And I don't know if Sarah, if you agree with that, makes sense. I'm kind of trying to, you know, trying to kind of cover the contradiction of how did you get there if it's not allowed? Yeah. Well, I think just a, a few points for clarification. One is life can make low assembly stuff. So anything below, mm -hmm. you know, the threshold can also be produced by life, but it's just not a definitive signature that living physics is present because we would expect it to possibly be formed by random chance chemistry, not selection. And so this sort of boundary is this constraint that we expect the universe to have where selection or whatever physics is governing life, that mechanism must be in place in order to observe those high, high assembly objects. Otherwise, there's no a priori expectation we should have that they would ever be produced. And that comes from the argument of the number of steps and the fact that the space is combinatorially exploding. So every step you make, you could make a misstep and also the number of objects in your past is increasing. So there's this sort of double exponential growth of the possibility space or exponential if you actually constrain it to be physically realistic. And then so you're selecting things out of an exponentially growing space. And then we're also trying to observe them with high copy number, which means that whole causal chain had to be selected to produce it. So, you know, that memory that we've been talking about has to be instantiated in physical objects. So you can think of assembly theory basically saying life is a stack of objects that's very deep in time that are basically assembling other objects. And that entire stack is necessary to get to like these high assembly things. And so, so, so this is one of the reasons that we see a threshold and we can theoretically predict there should be a threshold. And actually, um, we've done a little bit of that work in past papers, but one of the things that we're doing now is really fleshing out what this transition from non-life to life actually looks like in assembly theory and quantifying its properties and some of the mechanisms of crossing that boundary, which for me is super exciting because I think it's really, it's, it's an interesting way of framing the original life problem that you can actually quantify when you think it should happen and what the kinds of conditions of the chemistry are to mediate the transition. So I think those are predictions we can make from the theory. But also, I think when you're talking about the original life, you're assuming life is different than non-life um, in some sense, because you're expecting a sharp transition. And I think what assembly theory does is because it unifies the non-living and living universe with this kind of description in terms of selection and how much time is embedded in an object, that we actually now have a meaningful way of talking about when systems cross that boundary, because we have the same descriptive language for describing both the non-living and living universe. And I, I think like that. that that's an incredibly powerful way of approaching the origin life problem, whether the things we're doing turn out to be correct. I think that's the right way of framing it. Well, yeah, very nice. That makes a lot of sense to me. So if 13 or 14 is the prebiotic range, 15 is in the biotic. How big does biotic stuff get in terms of steps? So it gets pretty big. And it's kind of interesting. Like we we were getting trolled actually on one of our papers and they were like, what is, and no, I won't necessarily go into the troll just now because the tro never feed the trolls. Um, and they were complaining about, you know, the numbers and so on. And actually, you look at the paper we published um, in Nature Communications a few years ago, it's, um, you, we've, we kind of take a lot of different biological samples and E. coli um, and Taxol um, are on there. Now, Taxol is a molecule that you can purify and put, and E. coli is obviously a cell and you crunch it all up. So when we when we, so the label on that graph is E. coli is like all the molecules in E. coli and there's a lot of them and taxol. But nice. But but to answer your question directly, I think molecule. So there's there's only so much complexity you can compact into a molecule. 
And then some really interesting things happen because molecules get bigger and they become polymers. And when they become polymers, then there's a different way of counting things that we're working out at the moment. But, but basically, you can get molecules that have complexities going up to 30, 40, 50, or 60. So super huge. But there might be another phase transition. And this is something that Sarah was kind of, you know, again, a way Sarah and I came together on because she also likes thinking about techno signatures, which I think is super cool. Because, like, you know, like the. We'll be talking about next. Yeah. yeah so I'll let, see, so I'll let Sarah talk about that. So there seems to be another phase transition. You've got the fans transition from random to evolutionary, right? Evolution is not that smart, but it is that persistent. And it is going to go, right? And it doesn't. But evolution, at some point for abstraction, builds platforms. And that platform allows abstraction. You can redesign things from scratch. So me as a chemist, I could go in a lab and make a really complicated molecule that has an assembly index of, I don't know, 50. Because how could I do that? I just put 50 different elements together in one molecule. And I make it in high column number. And I'm like, there you go. Assembly index 50, which is quite hard, I would say. But biology could never do that. So suddenly, you might even be able to use assembly to not just tell the difference between dead and life, but life and technology, and technology-wise ah. intelligence. Well, I love this, because I'll tell you what, when I first showed up at the Santa Fe Institute as a retired business guy in 2002, I made an assertion that a lot of people poo-pooed at the time, which is that there are two pretty bright lines in the history of the universe. One is the evolution of life, and the second is the evolution of what we would now call general intelligence, probably closely related to language or something very close to language. And this sounds like your theory actually confirms I was right, that there's a, a clear phase transaction and assembly theory between biotic and non-biotic. And there may be, and I would say probably is, between, because I was going to exactly ask you that question, okay, putting your Chemify hat on, you throw all your venture dollars at it. What's the biggest damn assembly number you can come up with using the very hottest, newest synthetic chemistry techniques. Is it thousands? Is it millions? Right? No, it won't be thousands or millions because it becomes uncountable because the molecule becomes so big. It becomes... So here's a really interesting thing. This is why assembly theory is actually fairly good theory for being precisely computable. The, mo it, the assembly theory is good when the object can be found in identical copies. And in chemistry, you talk about moles of molecules, identical copies. If your molecule is unstable, then it becomes difficult to have a lot of identical copies, right, down to, for molecular assembly. And if your molecule becomes so big, it becomes error. There's lots of errors, like in a protein that you could have mutation. Then suddenly that the theory has to change and go up a level. So, so I think there is, and I'm just finishing a paper on this right now, there is a finite limit to the amount of information you can store in a molecule. It's kind of like the information limit in a molecule. And it requires a redefinition of what a molecule is. And it's so cool. The chemists are kind of like angry with me as it is. They're going to be double angry after this and say, ah, oh, this is rubbish. But I think it's actually not rubbish. It's to do with the error because if let's just you know, say you and I start making molecules, right? And we and as fast as so when I make the molecule and your quality control. So I throw a molecule, you go, yeah, that's correct, that's correct. Make me a bigger one, bigger one, Lee. Come on, bigger molecule. And I then and I make a molecule that's so big I make an error. And I'm like, no, there's an error, correct it. And so I correct that error. And you're like, no, there's an error down here now. Come on, get it right, man. 
And I and every and so if yeah, I can't mutation, actually, if the mutation rate is high enough, you'll never get a clean copy. Exactly. So yeah, there is yeah. a fundamental limit to the amount of information you can uh, cram into a volume yep, in molecular assembly. Yeah. If you if you assume a mutation rate. Now my academic, my scientific home field is evolutionary computing, right? So I'm well aware of error catastrophes and things like that. Which actually reminds me, when we talk about memory. Memory's got to be measured in some effectiveness term, right? Because, again, my hypothesis has always been I had an amazing four-hour conversation with Stuart Kaufman about this. We were both sitting there going, hmm, which is error catastrophe is a big barrier to the origin of life in that, you know, it's a mathematical result of mutation rates being too high, the ability for evolution to build very high is limited. It slows down to almost zero pretty quickly. And that's a phase transition when the error rate per unit of information is above X. So I'm going to ask, does your theory of memory include some effectiveness index like fidelity of copying of core informational components such as DNA? You know, the, the conversation I had with Kaufman was, okay, how in the hell did we get from a world with out error correcting copying of DNA to error correcting copying of DNA without error correcting copying of DNA. And we both agreed this was a very narrow ridge, the passage of which is not entirely clear. So talk to me a little bit about what your memory, an index on that memory, quantity of memory might include on the qualitative side, things like high fidelity information copying, error correction, et cetera, if that makes any sense. Totally. Lee, do you want to take it? I know, but I think you have more to say on this as a chemist than I do as a physicist. I mean, I would, I would, I would, I would say at the moment the error correction is actually something you can only see looking back because you build these machineries. And what we're doing at the moment, and I think Sarah alluded to that, we're actually looking at the, and this is maybe, Sarah, what you can mention is the, the scaling and the way selection is building things. And we are going to come up with and we'll use that to go into the lab. So that's a very good way of saying, sure, it's a problem, but we we're, we exist and technology exists, so it's not an insurmountable problem. But rather than speculate with large numbers, we're actually going to come up with some manifold, right, and then go backwards. And that's what you know Sarah's team is leading at the moment, and we're helping and vice versa. Yeah, the other thing, so I, I want to build on what you're saying, but the other point that I was going to make, so I, I wanted Lee to start because he's usually more concrete and I'm much more abstract, but um, but the abstract, like sort of the way I think about it is usually like the, the canonical error threshold in this error correction is distributed over the object. So if I have an object that's a sequence, I'm worried about getting the precise sequence of, you know, bits in the string. Whereas in assembly theory, the error is distributed over the causal chain. So it's a different sense of like what actually needs to be corrected because what you actually want to preserve is the stack of objects making other objects. And the things that are on the tail end of that causation, you almost don't care about in some sense. You want to preserve that whole evolutionary history. So I think the error threshold is kind of capturing, like if you coarse grain out all the history of the object, that there's some issue with like reproducing the fidelity of this object. But like what we care about is actually how do you even get that stack of causation to build those objects in the first place. And as Lee mentioned, this post-selected part of it, 
So assembly theory is one of the things that's the most radical departure from traditional theories of physics is like when you write a theory of physics, usually like you have a law of motion and you have an initial condition. So you have to fine tune the initial state of your universe and then apply this external law. Like you have some great programmer in the sky or a godlike entity that can just run the system. In assembly theory, we don't do it that way because we're trying to build a physics that explains observers inside the universe, like living things. So we look at objects that exist and we deconstruct their history and then build the local volume around those objects that exist and then talk about where are those objects in the space of things that could exist. And so in this sense, I think it will have some very meaningful things to say about the structure of why certain objects were selected in the biosphere when they were as a function of time. But some of the traditional framings of questions in Origin of Life are, you know, they look totally different in this framing and some of them become very relevant and some of them are actually just not questions that you know, are like the right ones to be asking because they might be too detail oriented about like the particular architecture of what evolved. And what you really want to ask questions about from our perspective is how do you get an evolutionary process and selection should do the work of building these kind of structures if you have some way of maintaining memory of the past and building up new objects, because there's some kind of preservation, like objects that exist want to continue to exist. So they get selected for persistence. And so sometimes I think of assembly as a physics of existence. It's like, why do some things exist and not others? And then the, the explanation for that is always in terms of these causal chains and the local relationship between objects. And, and that's another feature I really like is that some things can only exist with other things. They can't exist on their own. Yeah, that's the autocatalytic network. <laughs> yes, exactly. Concept, yeah, so right. I, I actually think autocatalysis will be an emergent property of some other assembly theoretic principles. And we're working on that too now. So, cause there's, there's, you know, I was always a big fan of Stu's ideas and I've talked with him a number of times over the years about some of these things as well. And so has Lee. But I think one of the things that's really hard about autocatalytic sets is how brittle they are and how you have to fine tune the reaction conditions and you, you can get closure on a graph, but then you have to put dynamics on it. And it's really hard to get these things to be stable in the lab. And I think that there's some ways that we can explain why you get certain features of autocatalysis that you do in, in real living systems by betting, embedding them in this evolutionary context that we have in assembly theory. Again, work to be done because we have so much to do now. <laughs> Such interesting work. stuff. We have yeah. A little bit of time. I got two topics I want to get into. So let's cut this off, even though there's lots yeah. more to be said here. Uh, next, you call this a theory of time. I'm not so sure it actually is. It's a theory of measuring something that happens over time, but it seems like it could easily be compatible with at least some deeper physics of time. I had uh, Lee Smolin on some time back, and we dug. Uh, we talked about all kinds of crazy stuff, but we also talked about his work with Unger on you know, real clockwork time, screw yeah. all these guys, right? Hey. You know, the world is, there actually is a, a universal clock everywhere, tick, tick, ticking. It's not obvious to me that your work is incompatible with that theory and perhaps other theories on deep fundamental, what's happening at the Planck time kinds of things. Right? No, 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 I think it's very, I, I mean, uh, Lee and I have both had, this Lee, we've both had conversations with Lee Smolin about this. And I think he probably comes the closest to how we think about time as anyone. I think assembly theory is a theory of time. Yeah. And so do you, do you want to take it, Lee, or can I say a couple of things? No, no, go ahead. I, okay. can then, I, can um, I mean, there are some parallels between assembly theory and like causal set theories of quantum gravity in terms of having a causal directed structure, except, you know, they treat events 
and we treat objects. So we think, you know, the physical things are the actual objects you see in the universe, like as, as physical structures. But I think, I think your criticism, you know, like why not just treat assembly theory as a measure of this thing? Why do you have to treat these things as intrinsic properties of objects? And this to me is, is really the part that's touching on this sort of new physics, because the problem I always had coming into the original life is I thought intrinsically the concept of information was really important, but information is this really abstract thing. Nobody can point to information as a physical thing. And an information theory itself has lots of problems. And some of the, like the, the easiest, obvious ones that it resolves are, are things like dealing with the fact, like novelty creation. So, so information theory already assumes you have a frequency distribution over objects. So they already have to be abundant in order to even talk about information. And assembly theory is really about how do you even get there in the first place. So there's some kind of interesting connections between canonical concepts of information that you might find in complex systems and assembly theory and what assembly theory explains. But the deeper story is, for me, is can you make information material? And I could trade time as an object for information as an object. But the point of information is information is accumulated over time. So it's a temporally embedded structure. And so if you want to treat the objects of evolution as material objects, which I would prefer to do than saying they're disembodied and they're not physical, then you have to treat this temporal dimension as a physical feature of the object. And so that embeds the object in time, but it embeds the object in time in the sense that it's informational properties, the properties about how it was caused to come into being, the properties about how it's constrained to exist in the space of all possibilities, all these things that might sound information theoretic in origin are embedded in this shortest path so that that's an informational structure. And now you're saying the molecule is not the thing I hold in my hand. It's actually this extended temporal structure that captures these evolutionary informational properties. And, you know, to make a new material category of nature to say time or information in this embedded structure is an object, I think people think is really radical, but they forget that all of the things in our theories of physics have exactly that property. They're things that we can measure and then we build a theory out of them. So mass didn't really become relevant as a physical quantity until we were trying to write down equations of motion and equations of gravity and it became the relevant parameter for describing features of object over their color or their size right? And we treat objects as point particles with a mass. That's a weird abstraction to do, but it works for gravity. And then we say objects have mass as a physical property because it's something we can measure. And in assembly theory, we say some concept of information or causation is relevant for describing physics of evolution and how objects come into existence. In assembly theory, we have a way of measuring this, at least for molecules, in terms of shortest path and copy number. So let's treat that as the object of our theory and really take seriously the physical properties that has for constructing a theory. And I think, I think for me, this is why I'm willing to take that leap, because I don't think information is disembodied. And I don't think when we see abstract properties, like even the words we're communicating, that they really are non-physical. I think they're just deep. Deeply embedded in time. And what we're seeing is evidence of time. Yep. And let me point out here that this is where, if you're right, you refute Einstein's block yes. universe, right? Which is, you know, Einstein assumed it all happens simultaneously somehow. But if this theory is correct, some things have to happen before other things can happen. So, yes. that, so the two are fundamentally incompatible. And so let me so, Lee, why don't you yeah, take yeah, that? I was going to say, so this is really why, so exactly the same thing. Assembly theory is to time what mass is to gravity, right? 
or assembly index, whatever you want to call it, right? Or assembly. Okay, so that's why so, you are arguing it is a, a theory of time rather than yes. an application of time. Because I might argue yeah. it's a it's a, a way to represent trajectories in time as embedded in artifacts or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I have a great deal of sympathy for kind of saying, you know, it's this uh, the kind of tertiary measure and all this stuff. But we are able to just take to, we're making a leap and go taking the extension back back to that. Because let me give you a point. It, that, that's just, so the block universe is kind of a block universe. Novelty doesn't exist, right? Or at least it's not. At least it's not explained. There's no. There's no rational basis no, 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 for no, no. novelty in the block universe. Everything you can slide rule. We go up and down. You can go to novelty. You can go to the yeah, Boltzmann yeah. brain. Blah, 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 like the the block universe. The a natural consequence of the standard canon of physics is that novelty doesn't exist. Free will doesn't exist. There is no future. There is no past there is just the ability to move around in this that that's the consequence right and you can put and and physicists put all sorts of mumbo jumbo in there whether it's uh, the the quantum mechanics uh, mumbo jumbo or ever ready in <laughs> interpretations many well but let's let me get back to a couple more concrete things the universe is expanding in time and that means that time although i am a materialist the Space probably doesn't exist. Space is a local phenomena that it is is requires this thing that is time that creates options. So there are more options in the future than there are in the past. And so you know, at the birth of the universe, the universe didn't even have the compute capacity for intelligence. It had to create enough states to find an assemblage. It is a brain, right? <laughs> And, and I think once we and then find assemblages ourselves and all these other things. And so it's very important that we are we understand that, that there is this kind of that, that, you know, these things emerge together. And I'll just say for one further thing before is that the, the you know, the, the physicists require four things, right, to be true for the universe to be right. They have to have a big bang, which requires order is suddenly Bing, here's a load of order, guys. There you go. There's your second law. So order at the beginning. Thanks for that. Religious experience, number one. Number two, time is emergent, right? So number three, causation is uh, uh, emergent, right? And then time is emergent. So we have all these things. So we have, you know, and you can replace all those four assumptions with just one thing. The universe is intrinsically asymmetric, which I hasten to add, particle physics already tells us in CP violation. Yes. So it's like, so we, we see CP violation, and yet we put all this other stuff in. And so it's kind of, in, now, why does assembly theory reveal time? Well, what it does is it, and I think Sarah puts this very well in that she sees objects now as, sorry, she sees complex objects as having depth in time. A cell can just suddenly spring in to being just after that cell division. There's a lineage going all the way back. And it's a 4.2 billion year old lineage, or give it to like four, 4.2 billion years. What's 200 billion years between friends? So it's that, that when you see that object, the depth of all those, all those states that you have to go through and that's why it's super interesting that we have to reveal time in this way. Very cool. Well, now we'll move on to our last topic. And regular listeners know I am obsessed with the topic of the Fermi paradox and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And, and of course, I 
get guests to speculate on them, even if they have no knowledge whatsoever on the topic. This time, I actually have some guests whose theory is actually closely aligned to these questions. And Sarah indicated that uh, she'd been thinking about this in passing when she mentioned techno-signatures, which in the SETI world is the idea of looking out into the universe, not necessarily for messages from little green men, but from, you know, Dyson shells around stars or other, you know, techno-signatures that some massive technology built something that could not be explained by the phys- prebiotic physics or the equivalent of biology. So who wants to start with the implications of assembly theory for SETI and the Fermi paradox? Lee, go ahead. No, I was going to say Sarah has much more to say on it. Oh, okay. Sarah, I was going to say, I thought you were raising your hand. You're pointing to Sarah. Go for it. Yeah. I, well, I, th- I think there's two conversations to be had. Like one is the actual, like what are possible resolutions to the Fermi paradox? And another is like, what would be evidence of technology? And I think- Yeah, let's, let's do the first first and then yeah, the second. So, so I've actually been writing about this a little bit because I'm writing a popular science book. And one of the chapters I have titled The Great Perceptual Filter, which is a play on the great filter. And I, and I also wrote about it in this essay I wrote, AI is Life with no, Noema Magazine recently, like some of these ideas. But I think, I think people don't understand that technology itself evolves when they're talking about making first contact because they kind of think of technology as a static concept, like radio waves or, you know, the canonical target for SETI. But I think if you think about, you know, sort of all of our sensory perceptions that have evolved in the biosphere themselves as technologies, it's very clear that our ways of seeing have dramatically changed over 4 billion years. So for example, like, you know, the first cells might've had a single photon receptor and then the multicellular eye evolved. And then human societies came along and built telescopes and microscopes that allow us to see, you know, the most distant parts of the universe and, you know, some, some of the smallest. And I think, you know, the great filter is actually more about the technology of perception that we actually haven't developed the perceptual apparatus to see the structure of the physics of life. And you already see this in AI discussions. If you think life is about causation, we can't build into our technological systems a notion of causal structure and how to actually see objects as extended in time or as, as causal structures. And so my My take on on the Fermi paradox is it has nothing to do with aliens going extinct or the frequency distribution of them, but we actually don't know what we're looking for because we haven't solved the physics of what life is. And the analogy I usually make is to think about gravitational waves, which have been permeating this planet for billions of years. But until we had Einstein's theory of relativity and we could predict their existence, and then it took us 100 years to build interferometers to detect them, we couldn't make first contact with that phenomena because we needed this new technology of perception, as Claire Webb calls them, of gravitational wave interferometers to make contact with that phenomena and actually see the universe in gravitational waves. So for me, I think alien contact is still potentially in the future. And as I alluded to before, I think the first contact actually might be doing an experiment in the lab, uh, making aliens from scratch, because then we really understand the physics. And then just like particle physics and cosmology are tightly married where we, you know, make new particles in the lab. And then we have new understanding of large scale structure of the universe. I think life is a sufficiently deep phenomena in terms of the fundamental structure of our universe, that if we solve that physics here on Earth, then we might have new lenses and new ways of seeing the universe to actually resolve where other life might be or if it's out there, or to be able to make predictions and testable bounds on like why we're not seeing it. So, How about remote sensing? Like, Is it possible with spectroscopy to find assembly numbers greater than 15 in you know, a planet? exoplanetary atmospheres, things of that sort? We're trying, yeah. Yeah, that's what we're working on just now. I mean, I think there's a... So 
I have kind of three complementary things to add to what Sarah's saying. We talk about this quite a lot. The first one is the, the kind of boring one in that if the universe has grown in capability over time because there's more options available, maybe the first time it was possible to make intelligence, it did, and here we are. That's number one. And if you think about it, go all the way back to the start of the universe and there's space coming up. Boom, where, well, I shouldn't make pictures because it's all audio. But you've got, you got this point where the universe started, the universe expanded, and then, as, then stars formed. And as soon as they could, they exploded and built and, and, and they exploded and produced heavy elements. Those heavy elements and they created around other stars to form planets. Those planets got cooking chemistry. However, think about for a second the minimum amount of expansion from the origin required right for the so the the universe is already expanding for 5 billion years say for this or a billion years let's say the first stars just blew up quickly because they were the you know wrong masses they can and then another billion years passed so you've already got 2 billion years of expansion right so that's quite a lot so that's not one reason why they've got fermi paradox because the universe only got started making life at the same time why are we unable to detect it right now well because of the assembly chain because Basically, there's that we have a common. It's not evident that aliens will ever have a any reasoning or any mathematics or any language that we can ever understand in principle because we have a different origin, and we might have to go back to the origin of the universe to understand the alien. And this may seem weird, but but maybe assembly theory will help us to decipher this. It'll provide a Rosetta Stone for complexity. But we're only just applying it right now. It's just emerging literally this year and before that we did not have the ability to spot the difference between noise and assembly in our in the universe and i'm hoping that james webb and seti and various others as we collaborate with them and and, and the people that take the theory on can go there so i think i'm saying two things number one life probably required a certain chain of events stars to form explode planets to form and how far away they are from each other, number one. And number two, because the, each origin of life is a unique event, aliens may work on a different time scale on one planet. Thoughts may take longer. You know, cultures are different. And so, you know, it, it, the great perceptual filter is not a great, well, it is a great perceptual filter, but only with respect to Fermi's imagination. But we are there, to, we are here to make it better. Sarah, looks like you have something to add to this. Yeah, I was just—I was just going to say, just to give a visual to what Lee's describing, was sort of like if you think about life as being a trajectory through the space of possibilities, like alien life is a completely different trajectory through that space. So our ability to recognize it really depends on overlapping histories, yeah. and overlapping histories between objects are how they share information. So alien, by definition, are things that are not in our causal chain, and so this is, I think, one of the reasons they're so hard to recognize. But I wanted to go back to your your question about exoplanets because it is something that we're actively working on and I've had in my lab for a number of years at least one PhD student actively working on exoplanet observations and I think there that the real challenge is one the observations are super hard and two I think our planetary models are just like they're not designed for the problem of life detection in, in mind so a lot of the kind of biosignatures people are thinking about right now are these simple biosignature gases so I think what assembly theory offers there is this idea that you were just alluding to, that we might actually look for complex molecules 
in an atmosphere. But what we're trying to do right now is basically try to figure out from first principles, how would you model an atmosphere of a planet or even a planet's evolution in terms of assembly theoretic principles and what you can measure from telescopes. Um, and so this is a super hard thing to do, but basically the, the sort of program there becomes then how do you detect how much memory a planet has in it of past states in some sense, or, or like what is the structure of, of evolving complexity on a planet and how do you detect that remotely? So I'm super interested in being able to do that because I also think life is a planetary scale phenomenon. I like the idea of detecting a biosphere or technosphere rather than an individual instance of like an individual lineage within that structure. Um, so we have ways of thinking about it, but, but again, like this theory is so new and we have so much stuff to develop to both marry theory with experiments on earth and then theory with observations of other worlds. And Lee and I are both very hard nosed in how we want to do the science because we want to always connect back to what's actually observable and testable. And so the, the bar there is very high <laughs> for answering some of these questions in the short term, but we're, we're working very diligently and have amazing postdocs and students in both our groups trying to make those things happen. Our imaginations are bigger than our resources. Kind of <laughs> that's a, a nice thing. That's way. a good thing, right? That's a good thing. But fortunately, we're training or we have the, the privilege of having a lot of younger, and not always younger, but collaborate, lots of smart people and collaborators who are willing to work with us and adopt us and carry on. But I think... And do the know, craziest things. They're all crazy, but it's great. idea, actually, just from this podcast, actually, we should talk about this, Sarah, later. It's like, so actually, let's just assume that that life sprung, that Earth was the first chance that life, the universe got to make life. And look at that radius from the singularity, the, the, the Big Bang, and then just draw a circle around and don't look back, look over there. I don't even know if that makes any sense. And, and I'm pretty sure that if we do our jobs properly, that we will be able to, using James Webb and the, and the, out, the, the further telescopes from that, the further um, heritage that comes out there, we will be able to, we will have some chance to, to, to find living planets. And I think we must go beyond just looking for things like oxygen or methane, that we should look for more complexity. And I think Sarah's notions of, you know, this kind of e planetary atmosphere is changing, applying assembly theory models over there and looking for weird phenomena that can be explained by an assembly theoretic approach will be the, will, 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 we have a, a non-zero chance of doing it in the next decade or two. All right. Now, last question, your work, perhaps would give you some perspective, though neither of you are origin of life experts, on how hard is it for life to have formed? You know, in the Drake equation, we have all these various terms and, you know, the pre-filters versus, and then Robin Hansen's post-filters, et cetera. You may or may not, I mean, I, I, as any good 14-year-old nerd who read a lot of science fiction, I, of course, assumed there was had to be hundreds of thousands of sentient species in, in the universe. Now I'm much less sure. It might be one, right, mm -hmm. because of issues like this narrow edge razor to get over the error catastrophe with DNA. And then another one is the emergence of the eukaryotes, you know, you know, that, that, how the hell did that happen? Right. And, you know, from this assembly theory, I guess I'll, I'll make the question brisk. Does assembly theory tell us anything useful about the probability of life evolving on an otherwise suitable planet? 
I think it will. I when I, I mean, I, I people always cite these examples of these very rare chance events that happened like one time in the history of life on Earth. But I think almost every event that's happened in the four billion years of Earth's life is an incredibly improbable event. So when we see improbable events within that space hub and multiple times, like the origin of multicellularity, we go, oh, that must be easy. But of course, you have to d- scaffold and have that entire evolutionary history. And maybe from, you know, all the stacked objects that make multicellular organisms, it becomes an inevitability. And, and maybe in some cases, there's still things that, you know, like only happen once because one, once was enough to fill the space of possibilities to keep the cascade going. So I think the kind of notions of probability that we think about when we make arguments about the single sample of life on earth are completely flawed because the entire causal chain is, you know, it's one structure and it's not like you can say there was a rare event in that structure because that structure can't be decoupled from everything else that's happened. And the second point is, I think with assembly theory, we can make a prediction about the likelihood of life emerging in certain chemical environments with certain sets of constraints. And that's something that Lee and I are working on. So Lee's trying to build the experiments based on the same technology that he's developing with Chemify to do these kind of large scale original life experiments. And from the theory side, you know, there we've talked about this already on the podcast, but we anticipate there to be some kind of something like a phase transition or a transition in the physics at a certain assembly threshold. And so the question is, how can we force the system to cross that? And how do we understand the physics of that transition? And so that's something that we're working on now that I think will make predictions about how easy or hard that transition is. But I think you cannot make statements about the likelihood of the origin of life until we solve that problem. And people will do exactly what you were saying, where they'll say, oh, there's tons of Earth-like environments. There's probably billions of them in the world. Surely life must be an inevitability. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean anything if the probability of the origin of life is, you know, in the one in a trillions of planets, right? So until until we solve that problem, I don't think we can bound the probability of aliens at all, which is why I think the alien life problem and the origin of life problem are exactly the same problem. Lee? Yeah, I mean, I, I would I'd say, I don't know, if, I think Sarah would also claim to be an origin of life chemist. I was once. I stopped being an origin of life chemist for one reason, is that it, we became historical you know, let's go back and look at what could have happened. And the phrase prebiotically plausible to justify experimentation where people, you know, are, are doing great work and they're trying to get to the answers, some things. I just think for me, I want to be able to solve the problem in real time. And I think there's some things we don't yet understand in the physics and assembly theory. And I think the Drake occasion is kind of like, it's kind, it was kind of like, you know, a Sunday, maybe a Friday afternoon, let's do this. And everyone takes, it takes a life of its own. I have a slightly different opinion to Sarah. I think that persistent, I think that matter drives to complexity and the only process of comp- to get complexity is through assembly theory, kind of explanation, selection and so on. Selections occurring everywhere in the universe. So I think we need to reframe the question, say if selection predates biology and evolution and the origin of life, how much selection is required to get thing get get you know to get start making that transition, okay? And then we can start thinking about looking at that everywhere. And I think you know when people say, and I think I agree with Sarah about the I you know the planet Earth being everything is unique because <laughs> if you take a if you take a load of sand and you draw a picture in the sand and then some wind blows it, that's unique, that's unique, that's unique. I think what we're, what isn't unique and it's common in the universe is there is persistence and there is stuff that is going to undergo selection. And so I think that we really need to start framing it in that way. And I think that we are, 
you know, the one reason for the long time of, you know, the emergence of eukaryotes and then, the, you know, then, you know, via and photosynthesis and oxygen catastrophe. It's like maybe, maybe Earth has a low global IQ over time because the G was wrong. And some planets where G is, you know, is less, therefore you don't need such metabolic efforts to move around, then you get to intelligence quicker. It's, we just don't know. But what we do know is selection, pre, or we have a very strong impression is that selection is as fundamental for the, for the emergence of biology as gravity is for the emergence of stars. Very cool. This has been one of my favorite episodes ever. This was just fantastic. So I really want to thank Sarah Walker and Leek Cronin for a hugely interesting conversation and check out the episode page at jimrutshow.com for numerous links to learn more about the ideas of assembly theory. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.